This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. The deep division that that created between the well-being of bodies and the state of someone's soul runs deep in American Christianity. Uh, the, the notion that, uh, that salvation is primarily about getting right with God as an individual and then, you know, working out uh, implications of discipleship and whatever else on down the road. Uh, I, I don't find that in uh, the ancient church. I don't find that in the Church of the Middle Ages or the Church of the Reformation. Uh, that is that is a legacy of slaveholder religion. And while slavery went away after the Civil War, that faith didn't go away. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. We started the show because we saw lots of people who were ready to give up or had already given up on a form of Christianity that didn't work for them anymore, didn't work in the world anymore. And if that describes you, then this show is for you. We believe it's our work to make Christianity possible for you again and for the next generation, which is why we're super excited to have on Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove this week. He has helped to make Christianity more possible for us and for lots of people. He's done so much amazing work, like founding the Rutba House, where the formerly homeless are welcomed into community, directing the School for Conversion, and serving as the associate minister at the historically black St. John's Missionary Baptist Church in North Carolina. He co-compiled the book Common Prayer, and he wrote lots of books, including Strangers at My Door, The Third Reconstruction, and the brand new book Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. And Jonathan, just to start off, the title of your book. Finding freedom from slaveholder religion. Slaveholder religion. Like, I think a lot of people, that's going to come kind of as a shock, right? They're in like these seemingly good Bible teaching churches across America. They don't have any racist feelings towards anyone. So, yeah, so how are we missing this? And what would you say to someone who kind of has a hard time with this language of slaveholder religion? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, And it's good to talk to you all about it. I mean, um, the thing I don't want to say to um, white people uh, in the church is that I think you hate black people. I don't think most people are going around thinking that they hate black folks. As a matter of fact, I don't think uh, racism, for the most part in this country, is about hate at all. What I'm trying to point to with this kind of shorthand of slaveholder religion is that the struggle that we all inherited is really a struggle for for power, and that in this country, um, and the legacy that white supremacy hands on to us, uh, religion got awfully tied up with the desire of people with the best of intentions, always, almost always with the best of intentions, to hold on to power and to believe that they could use it for good. And what I think is most important for Christians or for anybody who's going to grapple with the questions of faith to realize is that that intention of doing good with white power has blinded us to what Jesus actually did and what Jesus is doing in the world today. So, um, of course, I took this term from Frederick Douglass. Uh, He said it and he said it with a point on it that there was uh, between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ, the widest possible difference. And so I understand that to hear uh, uh, anything that we hold as closely as we do our faith, to hear that labeled slaveholder religion is going to be offensive, is going to be off-putting to some people. But I use the term because I think it helps us to focus on what we've inherited and all of the uh, all of the mess that's tied up with that. And because, um, frankly, I uh, was caught up in it. I was deep in it, and I was um, uh, trying to do all I could for Jesus. I thought that's what it meant, uh, you know, for me would be to become a politician for Jesus, and to and to sort of grasp that power and use it for good. And in doing so, I I nearly lost my soul. And so, what I'm trying to do is to offer people the freedom that I've found uh, by talking about slaveholder religion. So, thanks for asking. It's good to talk to you about it. The main premise of your book, as you just said, is that we need to distinguish between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of the slaveholder. So what's the difference between the two and how do we begin to do that? Yeah. Well, I try to understand it in the book by digging into uh, how people learn to read the Bible when they were arguing against abolition. 
So in the United States, uh, once race-based slavery had become a norm and the constitutional compromises uh, uh, that made the United States possible had uh, become law, uh, white supremacy was uh, the status quo, and there was an abolition movement that was a moral movement. Black folks, uh, some radical white folks, some Quakers, some evangelicals who came together and said um, that it's, it's, it's an offense to God. It's a moral offense that we uh, hold other people as property. Uh, that, was a, that was a big question to Christians, especially Christians in the South in the um, 1830s and 1840s, because if they were to accept the moral challenge of abolitionism, um, they would have to admit that they uh, had been wrong and they would have to repent, uh, not only, you know, of uh, uh, one or two little things, but of kind of the whole economic system that was built around the plantation economy. And so uh, there, were, there were some seriously well-funded efforts to pay preachers and professors at uh, seminaries to explain why you could read the Bible uh, and faithfully and still be a slave-holding Christian. Um, I'm, I'm not just talking about like one denomination or one theological tradition. This was everybody from the Episcopalians to the Baptists. Uh, it, was a, it was an accommodation of faith to uh, what people understood as the acceptable norm. And to do that, slaveholder religion had to, first of all, try to argue that the Bible hadn't challenged this in the past because there were slaves in the Old Testament, there were slaves in the New Testament, that, you know, this, this, uh, this had been an acceptable practice then and so could be an acceptable practice. Now, they tried that for a while, but as abolitionism grew in force, there's a fellow I quote in the book named Thomas Stringfellow, he's not the only one, but several people like him began to make the argument that slavery is actually a good, not only to the people who benefit from it economically, but to those who are enslaved. And they, they, they made that argument by saying that it would be better to be here in the United States as a slave and hear the gospel than to die in pagan Africa as they imagined it and go to hell. Now, that sounds like a crazy argument to most people now, but the deep division that that created between the well-being of bodies and the state of someone's soul runs deep in American Christianity. Uh, the, the notion that, uh, that salvation is primarily about getting right with God as an individual and then, you know, working out uh, implications of discipleship and whatever else on down the road. Uh, I, I don't find that in uh, the ancient church. I don't find that in the Church of the Middle Ages or the Church of the Reformation. Uh, that, is, that is a legacy of slaveholder religion. And while slavery went away after the Civil War, that faith didn't go away. And it, it's still very much with us now. Uh, so that's that's one piece of it, the kind of privatized individualistic faith uh, that is uh, very much a part of uh, much of American Christianity. Um, but then another piece of it, and one that we, I think we have to grapple with um, in our in our current moment, is that after the Civil War, there was something called a redemption movement. There were people who who tried to weaponize faith for a political agenda uh, in order to um, defend white supremacy, in order to say that uh, it was a moral issue uh, for white people to maintain control because to, uh, to lose white control of the political sphere was to slip into immorality, was to give into the corruption of, of, uh, of Northern politicians, uh, to, uh, the, uh, the evil, they said, of Negro rule. This was the language they were using at the time. The reason I think it's so important to, to dig deep into that movement and to understand the role that faith played in that is that um, the the hallmark of that uh, redemption movement was we have to take our country back. And it's very much the language and the spirit of uh, the Trump evangelicals today who uh, celebrate that they have, um, quote unquote, taken their country back in the same way that the redemptionists uh, felt like they had won the South back after the Civil War. Uh, white supremacy was at the heart of both of those movements. And so I think it's why it's especially important for uh, evangelicals in America to grapple with the legacy of slaveholder religion today. You know, I think a lot of people would hear, and, and maybe especially the Trump voter who kind of reluctantly voted for Trump, yeah. maybe isn't all the way to like the Franklin Grahams or the Jerry Falwell Juniors of the world, but just kind of felt like it was choosing between two bad options, really, and really wanted the Supreme Court seat and fight against abortion and all that kind of stuff. So I guess what I'm getting at is like, where do you see slaveholder religion in that 
Yeah, no, I talk to a lot of people who, who tell me, and very sincerely say, we don't embrace his character, we don't embrace his language, we don't embrace his extremism, but he embraced our political agenda. To which I say, where did you get that political agenda? Right. Part of what we got to grapple with is the way that slaveholder religion has for decades now worked very hard. And the same political forces that invested in slaveholder religion 150 years ago have invested a considerable amount of money in convincing Christians that the moral issues are abortion and where the Supreme Court stands on marriage equality. When as a matter of fact, there's next to nothing about that in Scripture. The moral issues that are in the prophets that are that Jesus is concerned about in the New Testament are the moral issues of how do we treat the poor? How do we treat the widows? How do we treat the immigrants? And uh, on, on the issue of how we treat immigrants, this administration is the worst we've seen in 70 or 80 years because the administration has embraced the policy agenda of the white nationalists. Now, there are a lot of people in, in the administration and in the Republican Party who will reject the so-called hate of the Nazis or the Klan when they march on Charlottesville or anywhere else. And of course, you know, they should. We should all reject that hate. But again, the politics of white supremacy is not about hate. It's about who has power. And the number one policy agenda of white nationalists, whether it's Richard Spencer or someone sitting in Congress, is to shut down immigration and to get people who they see as their enemy because their skin is brown out of this country. This is the, the whole scale agenda now of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement under the Trump administration, and it's a it's a sin. I think that's what Christians have to say. What this administration is doing to brown people who've lived in this country sometimes for two and three decades is a sin. It's an anti-family agenda. It's an attack on people. A brother named Pastor Jose has been living with us here in Sanctuary for nearly a year now. I've watched every day how ISIS policy is tearing their family apart. And it's only by the grace of God and their faith and the faith of the community around them that they're surviving. But this is this is rough stuff. This is every bit as bad as what was done to people, again, with the so-called blessing of slaveholder religion during the Jim Crow era. I would say in some cases, even during the slavery era. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So, Jonathan, one of the uh, pushbacks that you get often, and I've heard dozens of times that you address in your book, is this idea that the church isn't supposed to get involved in politics. Uh, what it means to be faithful to the gospel is just to back out uh, and basically not take sides. Of course, all the while, most people are still voting uh, and engaging in politics themselves. Can you kind of get into that a little bit of sort of where some of this uh, paradox lies and, and where it even comes from? Yeah, well, I I think that was an essential compromise of slaveholder religion. Again, it's the separation of the state of the soul from the state of the body. If you care about people's bodies, you have to care about how they're going to eat. How and if you care about how people are going to eat, you have to care about what they you know earn in the public square, what taxes they pay, those sort of issues. Those are political issues. But politics is just how we share life together, uh, life in common, uh, life in the polis. We call it politics. So, that, that, I mean, there's no life that doesn't include politics, uh, even less faith that could, include, that, that could exclude politics. But uh, as you were noting, that the uh, effort to drastically narrow what issues could be concerned, you know, of moral concern, uh, that's very much part of the legacy of, of slaveholder religion. It was much easier, 
especially after the redemption movement, it was much easier if faith could be consigned to matters of private life, matters of of personal morality, and uh, if the corporations could rule issues of public concern. And in many ways, that's what gets worked out in the 20th century, again, with considerable funding from the corporations in the movement to the best narrative we have of uh, how this happened is actually, I think, Kevin Cruz's book, One Nation Under God, where he lays out how, you know, the social gospel and the New Deal that accompanied the social gospel in the period after the Great Depression was really a powerful connection of our faith's concern for public justice with the issues of the day, which were labor concerns and taking care of elderly folks, health care for people in that situation. All of those things came together in a powerful way that really uh, scared corporations. And so corporations fought back by investing a lot of money in uh, a movement called spiritual mobilization. And the great effort of spiritual mobilization was to privatize faith and to bless a kind of uh, benign nationalism with the one nation under God kind of movement. And so all of the prayer breakfasts and the Christian nationalist traditions and mantras, see you at the pole, prayer days, and all of this stuff comes out of an effort to both debone the gospel and take the prophetic challenge of the gospel out of the public square, but also to use faith to baptize a kind of bland nationalism that says, I'm going to stand by my nation right or wrong because that's what God calls me to do. I mean, this is the sort of thing we saw when the United States was going to war in 2003 on some, you know, trumped up accusations of weapons of mass destruction that uh, a lot of people knew weren't true then and a lot more people know aren't true now. And, uh, and in that situation, when every Christian tradition said that a war against Iraq would, would not be a just war, the vast majority of Christians said, if, the, you know, if our evangelical president sends us to war, we're going to go to war. That's the sort of blind nationalism that I think slaveholder religion passes on to us and, and one that really cheapens our faith because it takes uh, the deep reflection that Christians have done about you know, what, what it would mean to go into war uh, for the purpose of justice and what would it, what would it mean to remain in war uh, in a just way. It takes that, that deep reflection and it, it really throws it out for a kind of cheap acceptance of the nation as a uh, mouthpiece for, for God and what God's doing in the world. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Jonathan, I think it'd be really cool you know, we're talking a lot about what the gospel is not. I think it'd be really cool to hear you share how you interpret the gospel now, like in light of your eyes kind of being opened. Like, like how do you understand what the gospel is now? Yeah, no, thanks. That's really important because, you know, I only want to talk about slaveholder religion to the extent that naming it helps us to see that there's an alternative to it. Uh, and that that alternative isn't something I'm trying to make up, but it's something that's been here all along. So, I mean, I called the book Reconstructing the Gospel because I think that's the tradition that grows up right in the face of slaveholder religion that says if America had to have reconstruction in order to, you know, imagine democracy in the same way, I think the church in America has to take seriously the challenge of reconstruction if we're going to have the gospel of Jesus because of the way that that was distorted by our compromise with the injustice of slavery. So, so that's not something that we have to, uh, again, imagine from scratch. That's that's something that the folks who were told that the Bible justified their slavery, and yet they heard uh, the God who, you know, called Israel out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead, speaking a message of liberation to them, um, that they heard in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me and has uh, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and knew that was for them. And uh, a church sprung up on the edges of plantation, what, uh, looking back, we now call slave religion. That faith that um, that walked out of the Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, Richard Allen and his cohort, and said, uh, not we're going to start a black church, but we're going to start a church for everybody. And the AME church that's been uh, here with us ever since. So uh, what is the core of, of that faith? I think it's that God's love is for everybody that God has interrupted the status quo in order to set the captives free, that God wants to offer us a new world, not by some kind of you know strategic plan that's going to be carried out from the top down, but by blessing those people who have been rejected and 
by linking them up with one another in order to build up uh, a, a new reality from the grassroots. Uh, that's that's my uh, sense of what the core of the Jesus movement was about and what, what the gospel is about still. And that's the, uh, the hope that I see. Is it uh, a personal relationship with Jesus? Absolutely. I think this is deeply personal, you know, uh, to know the name of Jesus, to know that your name has been called uh, by Jesus and to be in that relationship is a, is a personal transformation. The Holy Spirit comes, touches us and, and moves uh, between us heart to heart and breast to breast. And at the same time, it's necessarily a social communal thing. Uh, there's no relationship with Jesus apart from relationship with the sisters and brothers that we know in the body of Christ. Uh, that's a that's a, a a pneumatological reality in the New Testament. I think it's a it's a reality in the Spirit today. And so um, the gospel that uh, that I believe and have found to be good news, and the gospel I preach is the gospel of a beloved community that we're born again into in Jesus, and that we can invite uh, others to be part of and that we can join wherever the Spirit is moving in the world today. Jonathan, there's a, a part you said in there at the beginning that's really resonated with me in my own journey lately, and that's the idea of the gospel disrupting the status quo. Um, and, you know, you talk at the beginning about essentially this uh, one way of articulating the story of our American heritage is that the, the white church has had power, gained power, and uh, and wants to hold on to that power. And so, anyway, uh, I want you to maybe talk a little more on, on how that takes form in seemingly faithful Bible churches, this kind of reverence and submission to the status quo that actually ends up almost working against what the gospel would be doing. Well, yeah, that's the... Um... That's the great tragedy of slaveholder religion, that in the name of Jesus, we work against the things that Jesus wants to see in the world. So often, this is the case. But this is not new. This is the same thing Jesus faced, right? Who, who does Jesus have to grapple with? Not the secular people. Most of the so-called secular people who show up in the gospel are coming to Jesus to talk to him because they see something in him that is compelling and they want to be part of it. You know, like the... Uh, like the centurion who has a son who he wants to be healed. I mean, these people who aren't, you know, part of the faith tradition, part of the religious story that show up in the gospel, they, um, they, they seem to get it fairly often. The people that Jesus grapples with are the religious folk, are the people who think they understand the tradition better than him, even though he's, he is the God who they claim to worship. And so, so I, I think the same thing is true today, that so often, you know, the church is caught up in maintaining these traditions, and uh, even even when the church is working with the best of intentions, and you know the the church thinks that it has to defend these institutions or these customs, that uh, as a matter of fact, uh, God is trying to break through in the United States today. God hears the cry of poor people, and poor people all over this country are crying out for justice. And they're saying, if we don't get it, shut it down. Uh, poor black people, because, you know, they've been shot and killed by the police. Or or poor people who aren't, you know, making enough to survive. They, they often say in the 5 for 15, we can't survive on 725. They're literally out in the streets crying out for justice. And the church either misses it, ignores them, or says, well, maybe that's not the best way to go about it. No, this is Amos chapter 5. This is when you leave the shops and go out in the street and wail and cry, God says, I will show up, I will be there, and let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. You know, uh, I I talk to so many churches, mainline and evangelical, that are kind of anxious about, you know, whether this younger generation, you know, the millennials are or whatever we call them, uh, whether they're going to join the church, because the fastest growing religious group in America is the nuns, not the um, women in habits, but the folks who, who when asked, uh, what's your religious affiliation, they say none, N-O-N-E. And, you know, lots of people wringing their hands about, you know, what is the future of the institution? Well, well, there there's all kinds of movements out in the street crying out for justice. And I think uh, begging for the church to join them and to be there uh, to say God blesses the cry for justice and God wants to call everybody to stand alongside those who are hurting. 
if the if, if the law and the prophets doesn't mean that, I don't know what it means. So that's why I'm part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival today. And um, uh, during this season, uh, this this spring and summer, uh, there are direct actions happening all across the country where moral leaders are standing alongside poor people, poor women, immigrants, uh, you know, folk, folks who are trying to fight for a living wage, people who want access to health care, uh, uh, really taking a liturgy into the streets to say, these are moral concerns. These are God's concerns. And if we're going to be God's people, we're going to stand with those people who have those concerns, whether they go by the name of Christian or not. Yeah. Jonathan, I wonder if you could share maybe some stories from your own life about how you kind of found freedom from a lot of this. I mean, it's the subtitle of the book, right? Like finding freedom from slaveholder religion. So yeah, I'd just love to hear how that happened for you. Well, I, I really do believe that we're loved into community. And the people who've helped me to learn to see, I mean, the, one of the primary uh, challenges of slaveholder religion is that it blinds us. We're, we're blind to... Uh, even to the ways that we're even getting in God's way of of, of loving and saving us. So, uh, so how, how you know how do we how do we get set free from that? Well, we we have to draw near to people. And you know, we came to a historically black neighborhood in Durham 15 years ago, and just started sitting on porches and getting to know people, listening to the stories of people who had come home from prison, like Sammy, my neighbor, my brother here, who who just began to teach me we're exactly the same age. He's from here. You know, I'm from a white community not far from here. And he began to teach me the dramatically different realities we had lived over the same years in the same state because uh, of the difference in the color in our skin. And I I think those relationships are what transform us. Uh, And so that's what I pray for people who are frustrated with the church, who who are ready to give up, who, you know, uh, look at the way Christianity is represented, you know, by the talking heads on TV and say, you know, I don't want to be associated with that. I, I just pray that those people have the opportunity to draw near to folks who, who've suffered a lot of injustice and yet in the midst of that have found some faith, have found some hope, have found something to hold on to. And if we can link up in, in, in the context of those relationships and, and, and share uh, the hope that we found with one another, if we can link up in those contexts and, and, and go back and read the Bible again and listen to what these stories are really about, um, that for me has been what has really brought the story to life and helped me to see that, um, that you know, those scriptures that I memorized as a kid, uh, those are powerful revolutionary words. And yet they had been stifled and pressed down for so long that I couldn't hear that until I heard it alongside people who had lived a very different reality. Give me give me an example of one of those scriptures that you memorized as a kid that kind of has whole new life and meaning for you now. I think about uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, where it says, um, about halfway into the second chapter, it says that he, talking about Jesus, he himself is our peace, where he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. And, 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 and out, of the, out of the two has made one new humanity in his body, um, uh, that, that he's done that so that we can be reconciled to God. I, I think of that scripture every time I think about, you know, how, how I'm in fellowship with someone like Sammy, with someone like Jose, who's undocumented and facing deportation, um, uh, with somebody like my sister Jen, uh, who, who gathers the young women together for uh, after-school program right here where I am right now every day. And in, in, in these spaces with these sisters and brothers that, that, that I'm separated from in this society by race, by class, by gender, by all of these uh, different labels that we have, Ephesians says that Jesus destroyed those barriers so that I could be reconciled to God. And that's what the whole, the whole story of salvation is about, that I can't know God apart from knowing the new reality that's possible in friendship with this circle of believers and and circle of sisters and brothers. So that's the way that these texts come to life for me in the context of the, uh, the movement that Jesus makes possible.
in your book, you're really honest, Jonathan, with also how painful some of this journey can be. You used the language of feeling like you're being torn in two. And you quoted your friend and mentor, uh, Reverend William Barber, and a line that just it really resonated with me. Uh, and he said, uh, one of the things you have to know about white Christians is they've got to decide whether their mama lied to them. And something just really hit home with that. And it's even, you know, something Nate and I have talked about for years now is this, this idea that, you know, how do you appreciate and be grateful for the faith heritage that we've been given and at the same time be willing to see uh, that, that bundled up within that gift is sometimes the poison of white supremacy and racism and, and just how messy that can be with the relationships and thinking about, you know, even our ancestry and, and all that. Can you touch on that? Yeah. Well, what Reverend Barber was passing on to me was something that an old an old deacon in his first church where he pastored had said to him when he was caught up in a labor struggle where uh, white folks and black folks were pitted against one another. And he was greatly disappointed that they hadn't stuck together. And as a word of realism, this elder said to him, what you've got to realize is that for them, to challenge white supremacy, they have to believe that their mama lied to them. And there's there's a deep honesty to that in that so much of the poison that has been passed down to us has been passed down to us by the people that we love. And yet at the same time, I think once we can begin to see it and once we can begin to realize uh, how it hurts not only those people who, um, you know, who have been disempowered, but it also deeply distorts those people who believe the lie and who hold on to the power, uh, I think there's a way in which we have to come to say, if we're going to love our mamas and our daddies, if we're going to in any way honor the best of their intentions, we have to confront this stuff. Um, we have to fight for, for our own freedom, in a sense, so that they too can be free. You know, I'm, I'm aware of the pain. I've lived through some of it, and I know people who are, who are determined not to give up on what they think is right. And from my perspective, I see that they're just caught up in something that they can't understand. And it's something that's not only killing other people, but it's killing them. I think to try in love with nonviolence and with, you know, a moral movement to challenge that is to love them. And so I'm trying to love my white sisters and brothers or my sisters and brothers who think that they're white, because I'm not even sure what whiteness is, you know, to the extent that it was a lie that was created to justify the subjugation of other people. I think whiteness has always been a kind of imagined ideal that people have um, have tried to perform and that in so many ways uh, haven't even been able to achieve themselves. And so internal to the lives of people who've tried to perform whiteness is uh, is a kind of uh, ongoing sense of uh, being insufficient, of not living up to what they think they ought to be. And uh, in so many ways, those people also just need to be loved as who they are. They need to be told that God loves you and you're enough. And that's fighting white supremacy, too. So that's where I am. I want, I want to love everybody and finding freedom from slaveholder religion more than anything else I've experienced uh, gives me a place from which to love everybody, including people who think that they're white. Mm, yeah. What are we responsible for as white American Christians? You know, I hear a lot of people say like, I didn't own slaves. I didn't oppress anyone. I didn't, you know, claim this nation and ethnically cleanse the people that were already living here. Like I wasn't the one who did that. But what would you say to them? Like, what are we responsible for? Well, whiteness is a lie that was imagined. And yet, White supremacy has shaped whole systems that define the world, economic systems, political systems. And there's no denying that people who are perceived as white, like you, like me, have a privilege within these systems. Now, I, from a moral perspective, I don't think it's a privilege to be the descendant of people who benefited from injustice. That's not a privilege. And yet you do have access to power in our shared life. So I would say that the responsibility of people who you know, are perceived as white is to listen closely to what those people who've been rejected by whiteness want, what they've experienced and what they say they want and need in order to survive, and then to use the access that you have in whatever systems you participate in to help those people get what they want. 
I know that sounds simple, but uh, in many ways, I think that's what solidarity means. Yeah, it, it sounds like you've actually found some inspiration and wisdom, first and foremost, in the, the deep roots of the, the black church here in America. But also you touched on, too, uh, finding monastic wisdom in, in this journey. Uh, I guess maybe a good way to end it here would be what you can share in terms of what practices and individual and communal disciplines you've found to help kind of sustain your journey uh, in unlearning whiteness and, and moving beyond that. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked. So so often when uh, we try to confront the legacy of slaveholder religion within American Christian traditions, those who are scared by that and who want to hold on to the way things are will, uh, will claim orthodoxy. They'll claim the broad Christian tradition and say that, that these sort of questions are just a kind of, you know, liberalism or progressive ideology that has, uh, that has creeped in in the last, uh, I don't know, people have different ways of narrowing it, but, you know, recently, um, whereas uh, they claim the, the old and ancient faith of the Christian tradition. And to that, uh, I say, no, no, no. Sla- slaveholder religion is an American imagination, uh, an American creation. Not that uh, the church didn't compromise in other ways at other times, but this is a this is a fairly recent thing, and there is a long and broad and rich Christian tradition from which we can draw. Uh, one of those is that monastic tradition of people who intentionally relocated themselves to the margins, to the uh, places away from the centers of power when they saw uh, Christianity embracing power in the in the early days of Christendom. And that movement um, has a, a long and deep tradition of prayer. I think prayer is essential and is central uh, to that tradition. The, the practices of prayer that come out of monasticism have been deeply important to us. Uh, we participated in uh, uh, a kind of group project uh, called Common Prayer, a liturgy for ordinary radicals that was really about learning how we could pray uh, in in the context we're in with the long tradition of monastic prayer and the uh, and the streams of, of faithfulness in this context that that, that uh, have been life-giving to us. So, so there's, there's that piece of prayer, but I think there's also the, the practices of, um, of attention to place and to people in place. Uh, I mean, hospitality is a deep tradition in the, in the, in the Benedictine strand, and uh, we got a lot to learn from the ways that even, um, you know, the, uh, the, the things that we treasure and value in Western society, like hospitals and education and such, grew out of this radical commitment to uh, to share uh, what the monastic communities had with the uh, people who were marginalized in their areas. So a lot to learn from the monastic tradition for, for some time. I've been talking to folks about a new monasticism in America, about trying to, you know, to, to reclaim those practices in this context, to relocate ourselves to the abandoned places of empire and to share our resources and to form, you know, communities, but not in a way that in any way isolates us. Because I think if, if people sort of drop out and isolate themselves, especially uh, white folks, they're, they're they're liable to reinforce their whiteness and reproduce it in, in ways. That's what so often happens in homeschool efforts and in uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, isolated communities that try to, uh, you know, to, to, to tell their own story over and against the world. That's not the kind of, uh, of, of separation I'm talking about, but but, but, but of, of coming together in small groups that are connected to one another and that are connected with neighbors and particularly with marginalized people in the places where we are, I think that has incredible power to help us reimagine um, uh, what faithfulness looks like in our daily life. Yeah, Jonathan, as we kind of close here, you know, I just can think of a lot of people who want to grow and want to change and want to learn, and they don't want to hold on to slaveholder religion. Yeah, so what practical advice would you give to someone who wants to respond in humility to this and do the right thing? Like, what can we do? How can we read the Bible better? Like, what practical advice, I guess, would you give? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right there. People who are yearning and longing to be free, and what is that first step? What's the, what's the first thing you can do on a road toward freedom? I, I think, you know, I think it's really important, especially for people you know, who thought that they're white to realize that, that, that in some ways there's work you have to do that, um, that we can't, we can't expect our black and brown sisters and brothers to do this work for us. So many times people will run to somebody, you know, tearful when they realize this and say, you know, help me, I need to be free. 
And, and, and as a matter of fact, you know, most black and brown folks deal with racism so much every day that trying to help you deal with your own internalized, you know, uh, uh, notion of what this is, is, is just too heavy a burden to bear. So I would say do your work by listening closely to what people have said. Listen to black theologians. Dr. James Cone just died, you know, the father of black theology in America. Read his books. Uh, read the womanist theologians who learned from him and developed their own schools. Listen closely to people who've been saying this because, again, this is not new. You know, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Howard Thurman, Fannie Lou Hamer, Martin King, Ella Baker. All of these people came before us. And today we have Emily Towns, Kelly Brown Douglas, Ebony Marshall Terman, the Reverend William Barber, who's been such a dear friend to me. Uh, uh, Cornell West and James Cone and so many people like this who've taught us so much. Uh, I think we could begin just by honoring their gift. I've got to call the name of my teacher, Willie Jennings, and the work that he's done on the Christian imagination. I mean, at 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 you know every level from the academy down to the Bible study, and and you know making it plain in sermons, we we have the gift of a black-led freedom movement in this country that that white folks can just begin listening to. And then, you know, listening and learning uh, in that tradition demands that we do something. And so uh, everywhere I go these days, I invite people to join the Poor People's Campaign, not because it's the only place, but because it's a place where people are coming together in communities all over the country right now. It's happening in Oregon, where y'all are. It's happening in North Carolina, where I am. It's happening in Washington, D.C. It's happening in state capitals all over the country. And it's a way that many of these intersecting issues come together in, in an attempt to change the moral narrative in this country. So Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, you can learn more about it at poorpeoplescampaign.org. And uh, it's a place I think that people can plug in practically and meet the kind of people who I think can not only give us hope, but help us imagine a different future. Thanks so much for coming on, Jonathan. And uh, and thanks for all that you do, not just writing the book, but uh your activism, your engagement. Can you tell our listeners where else you mentioned the Poor People's Campaign, uh, but where else can people find you? Uh, I think, are you doing a podcast now? Is uh, The Gathering? We do. Uh, Reverend Barber and I have a podcast called The Gathering. It's also a live stream uh, that happens out of uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, my institutional home, to the extent that I can be institutionalized, is at the School for Conversion here in Durham, schoolforconversion.org. And uh, uh, I do hope that you'll read Reconstructing the Gospel and let me know what you think. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to y'all. Man, I think this is just, this is so important and so valuable, I guess, to have white people, let's just say it, white people talking about this um, to other white people. Because, I mean, this is really, it's a problem we've created and it's a problem we need to deal with. Yeah, there there are a few pieces. I tried to ask him about as much as I could. You know, we talked about one of the most profound and helpful parts of Mark Charles's conversation is uh, talking about trauma uh, and specifically white America as a group that is suffering from historical perpetrators trauma. And Jonathan doesn't use the same language, but essentially talks about that as well in his book that when he said white people have work to do, that's a lot of what he's talking about is, is healing work to to get over this sickness essentially that we've kind of been plagued with and his his own story he talked a lot basically this book and we need to say you, you should go read the book it's a quick read easy read and it's it's really compelling it's it's a lot of just his confession and his story of of growing and um he really did articulate that he basically felt uh like he he came to terms with the fact that he felt divided. He felt like he was a, a soul split in two when he started to recognize and acknowledge some of the issues in American Christianity. So anyway, that's the first piece is, is that just seems so important to me is identifying how difficult it is to both acknowledge and then move beyond racism in our Christianity. It's not just you know an idea we have to agree with. It, it literally is going to be this whole body, whole person overcoming a plague or trauma that has inhabited our body, uh, he talks about. Uh, that was the first piece. Well, yeah, but before you, before you get to your second one, I think part of why that is so difficult too is it's overcoming the trauma and all that, but it's also, if, if we're going to change, like, 
we're talking about like a different interpretation of the gospel. We're talking about a different interpretation of the Bible and Bible verses. And as we talk about a lot on the show, this can alienate you from community. It can alienate you from, from even yourself and knowing like the tradition that you were a part of and you had everything figured out, you knew what it all meant. And now you're saying, okay, I'm, I, I don't know what that all means. I'm open to, hearing other people's take on that. It's it's a big deal because this is such a foundational thing. Um, anyways, I wanted to jump in on your first point before you got to your second one. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and then the second one was, um, and this is something I've been reflecting on a lot in the last couple of years, is uh, is this idea of status quo and, um, and whether Christianity itself supports the status quo or subverts the status quo. And, and really, like, my reflection was just, and that's kind of where I've been at for a while, is like, it just seems crazy to me, like really crazy at how thoroughly the church, especially the white church in America, has sided with conservative politics and is even willing to to self-label as conservative. Because that word, I mean, of course, there's other like baggage in our in our culture, but that word comes from the idea that we are conserving the status quo. Like that's the foundation of the political posture and attitude. So the piece of me is like, A, we're a country built on one of the most egregious evils in recent world history, right? Of building an entire nation out of kidnapping and enslaving an entire people group, right? And of course, like what we talked about with Mark a couple weeks ago, clearing this space for us to do that in with mass genocide of native peoples. So how could we think that our posture is supposed to be one of shutting down progress and holding on to where we came from, right? And and then as Christians who hold an idea of eschatology that that we are dependent on some final, you know, repair or restoration of God to actually bring about the kingdom, how can we be against change? Mm. You know, like like that's just the piece that seems so crazy to me is that is that idea like conservatism itself, not Republican Party, not GOP, like that idea that that we, when in doubt, we default with conserving what has been true. Mm. That just seems crazier to me than ever uh, when you when you actually are willing to look at your past and see where we come from. So basically, uh, and he he did this comparison between the post Civil War Reconstruction era, where essentially white pushback to black people gaining some semblance of power in the country uh, was what they called a redemption movement to get back to the America of the past, i.e. slavery, and and Trump's rhetoric of make America great again, just realizing like how racist make America great again is, right? Like, like the idea that we ever had a great America, to me, just seems more clearly just an evil and atrocious idea and an idea that that really like dismisses history, right. And dismisses entire groups of people. Um, so that, that is a big piece. And then he, he framed it in a different way when he opened the podcast and he talked about power and largely you can interpret this as white America created whiteness to, to create social power for itself. And that our history ever since then has been whether or not white American Christians are willing to relinquish that power. Yeah. So like conservative conservatism, um, just the idea of conserving. I think when we when we talk about that, like in the church, we talk about holding on to the God, protecting the gospel, right, from these outside forces. But this got me thinking about like when we had Mark Charles on a couple of weeks ago, and he's talking about the doctrine of discovery. I mean, we've used our theology to create these problems in our country. And I, I guess for me, my, my question is like, how are we still seeing that happen today? That's still what I want to explore because I think like with the doctrine of discovery, we go like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Like, I didn't do it. I don't know. I don't know what to do now. And I want to kind of expose the fact that this is still happening today. Well, yeah, that's part of the irony, right? Is like, I, you know, I didn't have any slaves. Like, I didn't oppress anyone. I don't, you know, incarcerate black people at a, at a disproportionate rate. And yet, I want to make America great again, right? Or I want to preserve what has been so good about America, it's like, okay, like how do those ideas come together where like who was America ever great for, right? And it really is embedded in this idea of doctrine discovery and manifest destiny that has been in, ingrained in our psyche. And I think what Jonathan was saying is, is reinforced in white evangelicalism is that somehow we created this great 
kingdom of God nation. Like we, the founding of America was almost this like, you know, divine entry into the promised land. And it's that story that we like can't get over, right? It's why Mark Charles wanted to demythologize Abraham Lincoln is like, we have to get over that story. It's just a lie. But that's a lot of like the religious fervor, I think, behind this like conserving peace. It's even like, you know, we talked about the slippery slope. It's that sense that we are here, we have arrived. All we have to do is keep from going anywhere, right? Which is just so at odds with the Christian theology that we are in exile waiting for this world to be changed. And I think it, it is that piece that that's just like so solidly embedded. But you and I, Nate, we talked for the last few weeks and before this conversation with Jonathan, that, that really we feel like it's, it's our ethical responsibility to dig as deep as possible into figuring out like how are any even shreds of these racist ideas how are there any bits and pieces of slaveholder religion that are embedded not just in our culture or even the christian subculture but actually in the theological ideas that are at the top of the stream right and so uh, jonathan really mentioned uh, one big one which is the separation of soul and body. Uh, but I think that's where we want to keep pushing in over the next few weeks is exploring, you know, like how does the way we've talked about atonement or the individualism and conversionism in the church, like how is it actually carrying these racist ideas forward for people that aren't Trump voters even, right? People like us or, you know, anybody else who's just trying to be a Christian in America, like are, where are there remnants of this slaveholder religion that still need to be dug out? Yep, totally. And that's what we're going to keep doing on the next few episodes. So stick with us. So glad you were with us today. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, we, we really love to hear all of those. And we read every single email we get, and it really influences and impacts the direction of the show. So we'd love to hear from you if you're listening along on this journey with us. First of all, hi. And second of all, you can email us at contact at almostheretical.com. We'll see you next week. Peace. Peace.